last week. I uh, want to say thank you to everyone that uh, responded. Uh, your words were very kind, many of you, texts, emails, Facebook messages. It's a very emotional day for me, getting the chance to be able to speak uh, first time in eight and a half years, and was extremely nervous, and just don't understand uh, was able to get that over with and done, and then to speak again today. Do pray for Chad and Amy and their family as they're on vacation. We'll be coming back. Um, got a text from him a couple minutes ago. Very, very kind words. And I cannot tell you uh, just how much he means to me personally and uh, his family, the impact that they have had on my life and my family, uh, my children especially, and um, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here. Uh, Chad and I were friends well before we ever came to the link, uh, back when I was still a youth pastor and then transitioning out of that. He was really one of the people that uh, helped me and encouraged me, um, and it was through that, and then he ended up being Cynthia's basketball coach at Buford Middle School and came to pick her up from a tryout and I'm looking across the gym floor and like who's that ball guy is that Chad Barr and we had first made friends uh, on Twitter back in Twitter's early days and then we met in real life just after I was out of the ministry and um, and then reconnected that way and we eventually started going to the small group that uh, met at his house. This is, I don't know, like eight, eight and a half years ago. And about a year later, after uh, a lot of encouragement from my family, uh, we eventually started coming to the link, and that was a huge step uh, for us and a humongous decision for me to make. It was really turning my back on a lot of things. Uh, but that was difficult at the time, but looking back, one of the greatest decisions uh, I think that I've ever made, and just love it here, uh, love, as I said, Chad and his family, love you guys, uh, love my small group, uh, they're one of the highlights of my whole week, and um, they're crazy, and they know it, and all of them anyway. And so it's good to be here with you again today, and again, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but I think that we're going to be good. You have a listening guide there, and I encourage you to fill in your blanks as we go. Last week, we kind of looked at a topical message on what is your motivation, and hopefully uh, we have made a decision, we've crossed the line of faith and received Jesus Christ, hopefully, if you haven't. It's really as simple as ABC, uh, admit, believe, and confess, admit that you've messed up, that you've uh, sinned, that you haven't always been exactly what God wants you to be, and I think anyone that is honest with themselves could easily come to that point. I really don't think it's, again, I, it doesn't even, I can't even fathom how someone would not do such a thing, and then to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that the only way to go to heaven is to confess that, to believe that, accept that as truth and as your only hope of going to heaven. 
So a person does that, and then they set off on this journey, this life, where hopefully they have this heart to live for God, to please Jesus Christ, to be like him, and they have certain motivating factors. We talked about that last week. Uh, The lowest level being fear, fear of the consequences of what might happen to you if you don't. And then the next higher level, still a kind of low level, and that's the, uh, the motivation of duty, of just doing what you have to do for God out of a sense of duty and how that could easily become drudgery. But then you could take a step up and go to the reward level where there are certain things that might be in it for you and that is higher than the others, but it can lead to selfishness and many different other things, but then the level of love and that being the highest level, that's what motivates God and that's what ought to be to motivate us. Today's message kind of goes hand in hand with that a little bit. message I've entitled Knock Knock. And uh, earlier this week on the Link Facebook page, I encouraged people to turn in their favorite knock-knock jokes, and a few people did. Uh, I want to cover those, but before we do that, Kurt, that's for you. He's saying in your eyes. Some of you might get that, but I might do that. So anyhow, knock, knock. Let's try that again. Knock, knock. Okay. Little old lady. I didn't know that you could yodel. I didn't make these up, okay? I just want to say that. If if you like them, maybe I'll take credit. But uh, these were from the Link Facebook page. Knock, knock. Canoe. Can you help me with my homework? That was from Chad. So sometimes dad jokes, they're the worst jokes. At least that's what my kids tell me. I think I'm hilarious, but anyhow. Chad, you might have to work on that a little bit. Knock, knock. This is my favorite one, by the way. This is from Carrie Carper. Interrupting cow. Moo! I like that one. That's my favorite. You look with me. At Revelation chapter 3, we look at verses 14 to 22. Last week we kind of looked at a topic. This week we're going to go through some verses. Probably don't recognize this picture. It's a painting from sometime in the 1800s by a man named Holman Hunt called The Light of the World. But you might recognize a variant of it. And that's this picture. Raise your hand if, you've, if this picture looks halfway familiar. Cool. So we're dealing with something that's a little familiar. Picture of Jesus knocking at a door. And that is based upon the verses that we're going to look at today. Revelation 3, verse 14 says, Write this to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of all God has made, says this, I know what you do, that you are not hot or cold, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm ready to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and do not need anything, but you do not know that you are really miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold made pure in fire so that you can be truly rich. Buy for me white clothes so that you can be clothed 
and so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Buy from me medicine to put on your eyes so that you can truly see. I correct and punish those whom I love. So be eager to do right and change your hearts and lives. And we get the title of the message from the next verse. It says, here am I. I stand at the door and knock. If you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you, and you will eat with me. Those who win the victory will sit with me on my throne in the same way that I won the victory and sat down with my Father on his throne. Everyone who has ears should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to look today, we're going to go through these verses, especially verses 14 through 20, and uh, try to draw some applications out of these things and figure out what exactly do they mean. Sometimes I feel like the book of Revelation, some people look at it with a lot of curiosity and they want to know, they realize this has a lot to do with the future, what's going to happen, but it can also be in some ways somewhat confusing. And is this uh, something that is literal? Is this something that's figurative? Um, When is this going to happen? And many different things, and that is another time and another place to go into all those different things. But... uh, In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, John writes, he's given this revelation from Jesus himself. Uh, John's an old man. He's in exile on this island uh, out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, an island called Patmos, and he receives this revelation from Jesus. And there's three ways to view these two chapters. And we're just going to kind of hit on them for a second. One is they're written to real churches. There was a church back in the around 90, 95 A.D. in a town called Laodicea. And John wrote this part of Revelation to them. That is a place, that was a church, and that was real. And so kind of keep that in mind as we go through here, that these, this is written to real people almost 2,000 years ago. And so you say, oh, that's great, Ryan. Um, Those people are probably dead and gone. Yes, they're dead and gone. So, you know, doesn't necessarily mean much to me. Well, it's in God's Word. It's in the Bible, so it does mean something. Because it's written to all believers in churches. So it's written to us in the year 2017 in the link. It's just as relevant today as it was back then. And it also, in these couple chapters, provides a rough sketch of church history. I don't know if you have ever looked into this or heard this before, but these seven churches, and Laodicea is the last one that's addressed in these two chapters, um, people who study history, and especially Christian history, church history, see a lot of parallels between these churches and these different kind of time periods, these different ages from Jesus' time on to today. And there are certain characteristics of each church that, that kind of align with certain periods of time. The first church, um, there's a lot of description of it. This, that's the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 at the beginning of the chapter that kind of aligns with the church during the time of the apostles. And then as you go on through these different churches, through the different times, um, after the church of the apostles, eventually uh, they died, and 
were off the scene. And then you have the persecuted church um, where the Roman Empire severely persecuted uh, believers during that time. And then it goes on. You have different you have the Dark Ages. I'm skipping ahead. You have the Reformation. You have uh, times during the 17 and 1800s where there's a great missionary emphasis on getting the gospel to all points throughout the world. And those things in history kind of fit with these different churches. And we're looking at the last period of church history, and we're not going to we're not going to try to fit that into necessarily our time. We're just going to look at what the verses mean, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about as we, um, and maybe you want to study that later. That's a good study. Okay, so, knock, knock. Verse 14, Jesus tells uh, John, write this to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of all that was made says this. Let's kind of draw some things out of this passage, some things I hope, hopefully, that can help us. Address to the angel, the angel of the church. The word angel there could also be translated and literally means messenger, or it would be to the pastor. Chad probably would like that idea that he's referred to as an angel and, and other pastors. John writes this letter to the pastor. He's then to give it to, uh, to the church. And it comes from Jesus himself. He calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of all God has made, says this. And he could have called himself anything. It's interesting that he uses these words for himself, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and then the ruler of all God has made. The emphasis is on Jesus being trustworthy and powerful. I don't know if you're like me, but you ever watch the news and get discouraged? Or today, you ever read through Facebook and people are talking about politics and things in the world? And it can be very discouraging. And uh, I have a lot of opinions, and sometimes I've expressed those, and uh, that's not always for the faint of heart, especially on social media. And things can get depressing as you... Uh, as you debate and as you try to point things out, not just politically but spiritually. And I think all of us need to come back to this idea from Revelation 3, verse 14, that Jesus is trustworthy and powerful. You ever had anyone betray your trust? Anyone make a promise and they didn't keep it? Um, anyone betray you, let you down, we've all been there, and that hurts. But Jesus is saying, look to me, because I am the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. He will never let us down. Now, I like to look at this particular passage of Scripture in context of kind of like my journey uh, as a believer, and uh, my journey up to this point in my life. And there have been times in my life, and I think back to my former church background, where it seemed like Jesus was knocking at the door. 
I knew him, but there were times when he was not really inside. He was more of a spectator. And that, I think, is kind of the default that we can all easily fall into instead of him being in with us and having a closer relationship with him. And thank God, though, he's trustworthy that at any moment uh, we can change all that. And uh, we can easily put our trust in him, not just for eternity, but for our everyday life, whether it be in our homes, our jobs, wherever it might be, um, we can trust him. He's trustworthy and he's powerful, not just trustworthy, but powerful. So we say, well, you know what, I'm going to trust him, but can he really, pro- can he really fulfill the promises and things that uh, he's made to me? And he can So that is a great encouragement to us. Verse 15, he says, I know what you do, that you are not hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm ready to spit you out of my mouth. Emphasis here is on Jesus knowing us. And so if that really sinks down, then to, at least in my mind, I, think, I start to think, you know what? There's no need for me to hide or to cover up or to try to be something that I'm not. I can be honest and transparent with God. He knows already. And again, I, I kind of draw on my past and in my former church background, being real, being transparent was not something that happened. And so that's why when I started coming to the small group that uh, met at Chad's house so many years ago, it was an eye-opener. I cannot believe that believers were actually real and transparent, and it blew my mind. I could not believe it. It was such culture shock, but it was wonderful because here I saw believers that weren't being fake, They were real people, and yet they still loved God, and they loved other people. And that was very, very inviting uh, to me, and thank God for it. So when we realize where Jesus says here, I know what you do, he knows us, he knows us intimately, he made us, and so there's no need to be anything that we're not trying to cover up from him, but rather he knows us, he knows the good and he knows the bad. He loves us anyway. And we're going to look a little later how when it's the things that aren't so good, he wants to help us with that and to correct that. So here in the verse, the verses, two verses, the emphasis on Jesus knowing us. Now let's talk about this whole idea of hot or cold. Because I think this is very misunderstood. And I used to think one way about these verses, but mm, may not be what's right. So hot and cold. Hot water is useful. Take a hot bath, cook with hot water, clean with hot water, Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. 
No one wants a sip of hot water. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not refreshing. It's probably not going to help your mouth at all. So these two kinds of water are useful, but lukewarm water is not too useful. We don't really use lukewarm water for many different things. So I said this place, Laodicea, it was a real place. It uh, is in what's now Turkey. Back then they called it Asia Minor. And they had to bring their drinking water in. And they were surrounded by these two towns. One town uh, called Hierapolis, they were known for their hot springs, this hot water. Uh, Another town, Colossae, where we get the book of Colossians from, they were known for their cold, refreshing water. And the town of Laodicea would have to bring both waters in. They had an aqueduct that came right into the, the town. And they would get their hot water, they would get their cold water, but when those would mix, when those waters would come together, they wouldn't use that water for any particular thing. So the hot water that came in from one place, that was useful. The cold water that came in from another place, that was useful, but the lukewarm water they didn't use. You say, well, what in the world does that mean to me? Here you have, just to see where it was, place of Laodicea on the map, some pictures of it, modern day. And if, I used to believe that what he's saying here is hot, that's like a, a, a picture of being committed to Jesus. Cold, that's a picture of not being committed. And then lukewarm, that's kind of somewhere in the middle. And so I used to think, you know, he's saying either be committed to me or be uncommitted to me. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying be committed or be uncommitted. I really don't get this idea of, and even when I would hear it, you know, preached and taught, where he's encouraging us to be uncommitted. And so is he really saying, you know, be hot for me, be committed, or be cold for me, be uncommitted, but don't be somewhere in the middle. That doesn't really make any sense. Jesus wouldn't want someone to be committed or hot or uncommitted rather than being middle of the road, lukewarm, in their relationship with him. So what what is he saying? He's saying either be hot water, because that's useful, there's many different uses, or be cold water, that's useful, it has many different uses, but don't be non-useful, this kind of lukewarm water. And I really believe that that's what it means here, and he draws upon the picture of the locality of where this place was, how they were surrounded by this place where they brought in the hot water, and this place over here where they brought in the cold water, and both were useful, but they didn't use the lukewarm water where they would meet. Hopefully that makes sense and not clear as mud. So I think he's encouraging us in our day to be useful, to be a hot water kind of person, or be a cold water kind of person. Either one is useful. Moving on. Verse 17, I, you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy and do not need anything. But you do not know that you're really miserable, pitiful, 
poor, blind, and naked. Again, let me remind you, this is a real place. This is a real church. This is written to real people, just like you and I, that had real families, real homes, real jobs, real uh, hurts, real blessings, real aches and pains. Everything that life has, these people had it. And he writes to them, and he says, You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and do not need anything. The people saw themselves as rich, materially wealthy. So oftentimes, though, we have misconceptions about many different things, about God, about other people. But one of the saddest things is we often have misconceptions about ourselves. We see ourselves in one way, when maybe other people see us differently. Ask the people around you. You may not, this might be dangerous. I shudder to think of it myself. Ask the people around you, the people you live with, or the people that know you best, to describe you. I'm not going to go there, but you might get some answers, and I would know I would get some answers that I might not necessarily notice, some answers that might come out of left field, some things that might uh, hurt my feelings. And they saw themselves as rich, materially wealthy, and they were. Uh, This particular town, sometime in between when this was written, around 95 or so A.D., and the time of Jesus, sometime in the middle there, this town was destroyed by an earthquake. And they rebuilt the city themselves. The Roman Empire, the leadership, they wanted to come and help rebuild the city. This was a very prosperous place, right on this trade route. And so these people were rich, materially. And they had a lot of money. And they knew that. And so the place was destroyed by an earthquake. The Roman Empire, who controlled everything, came in and they wanted to help rebuild the city. And it's very interesting because they said, no, no thank you. We got this. We'll do it ourselves. Last year we had a hurricane, Hurricane Matthew. And uh, places suffered uh, some destruction. And the government comes in, FEMA comes in, and uh, they offer help materially to rebuild things and to try to help people with their losses. Could you imagine someone going, no, no, thank you. I got this. Imagine a whole place saying, you know what? We got this. I work on Hilton Head, pretty much pretty wealthy. And FEMA comes in. And even people out there didn't say, you know what? No, thank you. We got this. But that's what Laodicea did. The Roman version of FEMA came in. said, let us help you. They said, no, we got this. We're going to rebuild it ourselves. That's how wealthy they were. They rebuilt it on their own dime. So they were rich, right, on this trade route, uh, known for trading wool, this black wool that was uh, treasured throughout the Roman Empire. But the people did not see themselves as Jesus saw them, spiritually poor. See, they had one view. They were viewing this life, what they could see with their own eyes. 
But Jesus was talking about the unseen, the eternal, which is much more important. We get so bogged down in this life that we often lose sight of all of eternity, where we're going to spend forever. And so these really few years that you and I have are nothing to be compared with forever. And so maybe we ought to be looking at the forever, the eternal, instead of this little temporary thing we, we've got going on right now. Now, it seems like a long time. Remember back, if you're my age, to when you were a teenager and you thought, you know, I can't wait to be older and to be an adult and be out of the house and to do my own thing. And it just seems like the waiting was forever and forever and forever. And one day you wake up, you're 45, and you go, you know, I blinked and I missed the whole thing. And that's how life is. You blink and boom. You're waking up at 45 with sore knees or sore back or whatever, gray hair, no hair, whatever it might be. And so this life is short. Maybe we ought to focus a little more on forever because we're all going to be somewhere forever. So really, this whole life is just kind of like a dress rehearsal for eternity. And so they said, I'm rich and I become wealthy and do not need anything. And materially, that was true. But Jesus flips the script and he wants to point out the spiritual He says, but you do not know that you're really miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. These people probably never saw themselves that way in their life at all. And spiritually, well, who really cares about that? I'm so blessed materially. But they had their view and their focus on the wrong thing and the wrong time. So he tries to bring them back to the true reality. And he says, I advise you to buy from me gold made pure in fire so that you can be truly rich. Buy from me white clothes so that you can be clothed and so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Buy from me medicine to put on your eyes so that you can truly see. So Jesus told them to buy three things from him. And they're symbolic but they're definitely important. Gold and white clothes. Let me go back. That should be gold and white clothes. A representation, a picture of purity. You can't just go and mine gold. I'm from uh, Sacramento, California, right near where the gold rush happened. And you could go up to the American River. I've done that before and, and go gold panning. You don't get the pure stuff. You have to get it, and it has to be uh, melted down. There are impurities, and that stuff has to be taken out. And so that involves a heating process. And so gold, back in that day and even today, when you talk about it in some figurative sort of way, it has this idea of it's been heated, it's been put under pressure, 
and it's been brought through the fire pure. All the things that shouldn't be there have been taken out, and now you have this pure thing. And white clothes, the same thing. These things are talking about this gold and these white clothes, about establishing a relationship with him. Again, through receiving Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to save you from your sins. And so that's when this happens. And he encourages them to come to him for that. But also for medicine, picture of healing and forgiveness. That's a daily, ongoing thing in our relationship with him. And this healing here isn't talking about physical. Again, he's trying to bring them out of the material, physical view and into the spiritual, eternal view. And so he's encouraging them to continue to come for him for this continual forgiveness that we all need. Again, not something that's really entering into their mind as they go through their daily lives because they have all these things. They see themselves as having need of nothing. And that's always a very dangerous place when we get complacent and we think, you know what, I'm good. I'm good, God. I've been there, and that's a very dangerous place. But thank God we can come back to him, and as he encourages us, he advises us to receive these things from him. He's the place where these things come from. Purity and forgiveness don't come from within. They come from him. And so he encourages us to come to him to receive these things. Thank God when we do, he doesn't turn us away. Verse 19. As I correct and punish those whom I love, so be eager to do right and change your hearts and lives. Jesus' heart is for our lives to be transformed. Literally, to be changed from the inside out, kind of like this metamorphosis. How a caterpillar, ugly caterpillar, turns into this beautiful butterfly. And just as that change happens from the inside out, he wants to change you and he wants to change me from the inside out. Change our hearts, change our minds, which then change our lives. He says, change your hearts and lives. The heart comes first. That's what he's seeking to do. He doesn't, God loves us too much to leave us as we are. He's seeking to change us, to transform us, to shape us and conform us to be more like his son Jesus. He will sometimes use correction to do that. It's not a nice thought. You say, well, Ryan, last week you said he's not the baseball bat God. He's not the lightning bolt God ready to just zap us. And so we ought to live in fear of him always behind us, ready just to smack us when we get out of line. That's not the picture of God that he's talking about here. The picture is like of a, of a father who truly loves his children and he wants his children to do what is right and so he's going to encourage them to do that. And sometimes that's going to involve some correction. In fact, that's what Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11 says. You might jot that reference down. 
look at it later, it says, so hold on through your suffering because they are like a father's discipline. God is treating you as children. All children are disciplined by their fathers. Hopefully that's the case. Uh, If you are never disciplined and every child must be disciplined, you are not true children. Let me stop there real quick. My children are a little older, but when they were growing up, sometimes they would do things that were wrong and they would have to be uh, corrected. But you know, I'd look around and I'd see the neighbors and their children would need to be corrected too. But there was never once that I go to the next door neighbor and go, you know what, little Johnny, little Susie, you're out of line and I'm going to have to take care of that right now. I didn't discipline the neighbor's children because they weren't my children. I took care of my children because they were mine. They were my responsibility. And God here is saying that if you've entered a relationship with him, he's your heavenly father and he's going to, um, you now belong to him. You're not, uh, he said before to the Pharisees that they were of their father, the devil. But when a person receives Jesus, they get adopted, they get taken out of that family and they get put over here, transferred into the family of God They now have a new father. God's their heavenly father. And now this relationship, this father-child relationship begins. And sometimes, uh, as children, he's going to correct us. Verse 9. We have all had fathers here on earth who disciplined us, and we respected them. Again, if, if, if a father corrects a child in the right way, then there's going to be respect for that. So it is even more important that we accept discipline from the Father of our spirits so we will have life. Our fathers on earth disciplined us for a short time in the way they thought was best, but God disciplines us to help us. That's very key. God disciplines us to help us so that we can become holy as he is. We do not enjoy being disciplined. No one goes, all right, I'm a child, I'm in trouble, and I get disciplined, this is going to be great. It's going to benefit me so much when I'm 45 down the road. No, no one's like that. Verse 11, but we do not enjoy being disciplined. It is painful at the time, but later, after we've learned from it, we have peace because we start living in the right way. And so God brings this correction in our life not to hurt us, but to help us. Not to beat us, but to benefit us. And imagine if God were to not, if he were just to let us go our own way. Would not be a good end result. But he loves us too much to allow that, so he's going to seek to bring us back. Verse 20. And I want to draw our main idea from this. Look at the verse. It says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you will eat with me. What in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus seeks a relationship with us and initiates it. Jesus seeks a relationship with us and initiates it. He just doesn't sit back and go, you know what? I love that person in Buford so much. I wish we could have a relationship. 
I'm waiting. He initiates it. Well, how did he do that? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for us. He showed it. He manifested it. Some versions use that. Um, he demonstrated his love for us even though while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. So you say, how does God initiate a relationship with me? That's the cross and what he did. And so a person can't say, you know what? God never reached out to me because he says, you know, look at the cross. That's my son there dying for you so that I could have a relationship with you. So he not only seeks it, but he's the initiator of us. He pursues us. That's an awesome thought. So it's our responsibility to respond. Knock, knock. So Jesus comes, he knocks at the door. It's our responsibility to respond. When we respond with a yes, we begin a relationship with Jesus. Now, don't think this is only at the point of beginning a relationship with him. Because, you know, he knocks on our door each and every day. I established that relationship with him 26 years ago. But he knocks on the door each and every day saying, can I come in? Can we be together? Can we spend some time together? Can we talk? Can I talk to you through the word? Will you talk with me? Let me know what's on your mind in prayer. He seeks that each and every day. Husband and wife, they get married. That's not the end of it. That's just the beginning. And when a person comes to Jesus, that's not the end of it. That's just the beginning. And just as that marriage ought to grow and the people ought to become closer and grow closer to one another, and grow in love with one another, that's how a relationship with God is supposed to be too. To get to know him more, and to grow in love with him more, to know him better. So, But when we respond with a yes, we begin a relationship with Jesus, but again, that's not the end of it. So he says, behold, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Remember the picture? And I don't know if you can see it necessarily with the lighting we have at the moment. But there he is. Can we maybe get the lights turned down? So he's knocking at the door. Thank you. The question is, where's the doorknob? A closer uh, inspection of the picture, this variation of Holman Hunt's original painting, Light of the World. Jesus there knocking at the door. There's no doorknob on the door. And hold on one sec. Just one sec. Okay. Let me tell you a story. 
So Holman Hunt was showing somebody this painting. And someone looked at it, and they go, you know what? There's something wrong with your painting, Mr. Hunt. Something wrong with my painting. I painted it. It can't be, I'm an artist. It's mine. It's, he said, what's wrong with the painting? And they said, where's the doorknob? There's no doorknob. Jesus is knocking on the door, but there's no way for him to get in. And Holman Hunt said, you don't understand. There is a doorknob. The big idea is the doorknob's on the inside. So here's Jesus knocking at the door. He doesn't bust the door down. He's not like the big bad wolf who huffs and puffs and blows the door down. He's over here knocking. We're over on the other side. It's our responsibility open the door and let him in. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you will eat with me. Relationship. He says, I'm waiting. I'm seeking. I'm knocking at your door seeking and initiating this relationship, it's our responsibility to respond and to respond with a yes. God says, I love you and I want to save you. I want to establish this relationship with you. But he doesn't force himself on us. He's knocking at the door. But we're over on this side. It's our responsibility to invite him in and let him in. But then each and every day, in seeking to have that closer relationship, every day he comes and knocks at the door. This establishing a relationship doesn't happen over and over. It's a one-time thing. But the ongoing relationship, that is something where we have the opportunity each and every day to open the door and say, Come in. Come into my life. Let's spend time together. Let's have this relationship. And so Jesus today, he's knocking. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's Jesus. No joke. It's really real. So we have that decision, that opportunity each and every day to grow in this relationship with him by inviting him in to have that closer relationship, that closer walk with him. And, you know, it's really our decision. He loves us enough not to force himself on us. That door is closed until we open it. Hopefully each and every day, after we pass that line of faith, we do that. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this part of the Bible that we looked at today. We thank you that you stand at the door and you knock. That you love us and you seek to have a relationship with us. You love us too much to just leave us to ourselves.
And I pray, Lord, that that idea just blows our minds. Pray for anyone today that they've never crossed that line of faith. They've never asked you to save them. Never started that relationship. Pray that today would be the day when they would. As we looked at in Revelation chapter 3, the life that we have is so short. Help us, Lord, not to wait another day. Put those things off. Maybe you've never done that. Again, as I said earlier, it's as simple as ABC. To admit that you've messed up, we've all blown it, we're all in that same boat. To believe, believe what Jesus did for you. The Son of God died on the cross, rising again three days. And to confess that. Say, you know what? That's my only hope right there. And I want Jesus to save me. That begins a relationship with him. That's opening the door. You've never done that today. Let me encourage you to do that. There's a card there in your bucket that would go to the advisory team, Chad and the advisors of the church, and they would love to know that and to be able to help you in any way. But you know... For those of us who've already received Jesus, we have that decision each and every day to open that door. So every day realize he's knocking at your door. Will you let him in?